Well, good morning and welcome to Rock Hills. It's so nice to see all of you here today. Just kind of the, to pull the curtain back here a little bit, a sobering perspective that I always try to stand up here on this stage with is I always come up here with the realization that every time I come on this stage, it could be somebody's first time to be here at Rock Hills or to be at church at all. And it could be somebody's last time to be at church at all or be here in Rock Hills. And so I realize that every time I have the privilege of being able to share from God's word with you guys, it's an important moment. And I want to take that seriously. And so as we wrap up the book of James, that's a similar perspective that James is writing this letter with. And he's writing this letter to a group of people who have faced all kinds of persecution that you and I can't even identify with. I mean, serious stuff. He's writing to these people and he says, I understand exactly what you're going through. He understands the transformation because he was a younger brother of Jesus who denied that Jesus was the Messiah until he saw that Jesus was risen and then his life was completely changed. He goes on to become the pastor of the church in Jerusalem that is the epicenter of persecution and they're scattering everywhere. And so James understands both what it means to have a life that is totally transformed and he also understands what it means to walk that out when it's really hard to do so. Because James made a choice that cost him a lot. And now he's serving people that are making the same choice. They want to believe and they're walking and they're following after Jesus, but it's not an easy road. And so James, as he's writing this letter, the book of James, that goes out to these churches, which would have been kind of like a mass email today, but he writes it on paper and it goes from one church to another church to a group of believers here and a group of believers there, and they just keep forwarding it and passing it around. As he's writing to these people, he's writing from this perspective. I may have one shot. I may just get one shot with you to tell you what is really important. And he's writing to people who have decided to follow after Christ. And he's saying, if you've decided to follow Christ, here is what you need to understand. Like we've talked about throughout this book, much of James, this isn't how you become a Christian. It's not how you are saved. He's writing from the perspective of, now that you are saved, this is how we're supposed to live our lives out. So that the world can see the same risen Christ that we've seen They can see him alive within us. So if you're a Christian here today, James is writing to us as well, saying this is how we live it out. If you're not a Christian here today and you're trying to search for answers and look for faith and that's what's brought you here or somebody drug you along, hopefully you'll see the same thing because you'll be able to look at it and go, now, if that's what Christianity means, that's how Christians should be living. And we would agree with you on that. And James would agree with you. On that. So he's got this one shot in the book of James. He began in in James chapter 1 talking about faith and wisdom. He's saying, You're going to go through hard times. You're going to face really hard things, but you can find joy in that. And we do that by not just hearing the word of God, but by doing what it says. Ask for wisdom, and God will give you wisdom. He will show you what his will is. He goes on in James chapter 2 and says, Your faith has to have action to it. 
If it's just something you believe and something you talk about, but it's not ever lived out, then your faith doesn't mean anything at all. Then he goes on in chapter 3 to address the things that we say. The things that come out of our mouth reveal what we truly believe. And so if we truly are a follower of Christ, what's coming out of our mouth should be the evidence of a life that's been transformed. Then he goes on in chapter 4 to talk about faith and humility, saying if you're following Christ, you need to live a life that gets out of the way so that God can do what God wants to do. You need to quit putting yourself first and let others go first so that God can work through you and in their lives. And then he gets to chapter 5. And chapter 5 is the last chapter of the book. And it's almost to me like he's going, he's like that preacher that says, okay, just one more point and I'm going to let you go. And then he goes on for another 30 minutes, you know, um, or it's like in our staff meetings, we, we go through our staff meetings and we talk about, okay, Josh, is there anything we need to address in worship? Uh, Callie, are there any issues that we need to talk about in kids? And Laura, who kind of administrates our meeting, she always starts with me. Adam, is there anything we need to talk about? And I'll list anything I can, you know, think about that I need to address. But then what we do is we go through the whole staff and then Laura comes back to me. Adam, is there anything that you forgot that we need to talk about? Because she knows there's probably three or four things that I forgot. And now I'm going to go, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I also need to talk about this. And James, he's talking about these points. And then he gets to chapter five and it's like, all of these small points that he crams into the, to the last book. Cause he's, he's got this one shot and he's saying, Oh, wait a minute, before you go, there's, there's about 20 other things I need to cover really quick. And so he's going to go through these things just really fast that he wants to make sure that they remember. He wants to make sure that we get these things. So today we're going to look at a few warnings that James throws out to his audience, a few reminders, and a few instructions. Just these short little messages that he crams into chapter 5 about the way that we should live our lives. I also think when I come up here on stage, if I'm talking to one of my children, what do I want to make sure before they're out of my house and on their own, what do I want to make sure that they know? And James is almost coming across with that parent's heart today of just saying, hey, here's some warnings you really need to know about. Here's some reminders. Here's some instructions because I want you to be the person that God created you to be in five years. As you keep moving through your life, I want you to be that person. So let's jump right in. We're going to look at a couple of warnings here real quick. James chapter 5, verse 1 through 6. He says, look here, you rich people. And he's not going to pull any punches. He jumps right into it. Look here, you rich people. Weep and groan with anguish because of all the terrible troubles ahead of you. Your wealth is rotting away and your fine clothes are moth-eaten rags. Your gold and silver are corroded. The very wealth you are counting on will eat away your flesh like fire. This is real pleasant, right? This corroded treasure you have hoarded will testify against you on the day of judgment. For listen, hear the cries of the field workers whom you have cheated of their pay. The cries of those who harvest your fields have reached the ears of the Lord of heaven's armies. You have spent years in luxury, satisfying your every desire. You have fattened yourselves for the day of slaughter. You have condemned and killed innocent people who do not resist you. Remember again, James, I mean, he's being really brash here, but he's thinking, I've got one shot in this letter to get across something really important. So 
I'm not going to cover it up with being nice. All right? I'm going to get right to the point. And he starts out with just laying in to the rich people. Right? Now, we don't know, scholars don't know necessarily if these rich people are Christians because almost everywhere else in the letter where he's addressing the Christians, he says brothers and sisters. And he'll say that again in a second. But here he doesn't say that. He says rich people. Now, those rich people could have been some of the early followers of Christ or they could have just been the rich people who are in the community. And James saying, oh yeah, I've got something to say to you as well. But either way, whether these people are Christians or whether they're not, what James is telling them here is applicable to both sets of people. James is talking to this group of people who have power that other people don't have. They have privilege that other people don't have. They have possessions that other people don't have. And they're able to enjoy pleasures that other people don't have. And one thing that I think is important here, life is not fair. These people understood that. And we've lived life long enough to understand that life is not fair. And the truth is, God never said it would be. God never said that everybody is going to get the exact same thing. We're all going to get treated the exact same way. We're all going to have all of the same opportunities. The truth is, we've all been given different gifts. We're all put into different situations. We all have access to different opportunities. I mean, you guys live in America. You have access to things that millions of other people don't have, right? Life's just not fair. But it comes down to the fact that we have to be responsible with whatever power or responsibilities that we're given to use those wisely. So the first warning we see here is we should never use what we have to oppress or cheat others. So regardless of what you have, whether you're in the richest end of San Antonio or in the poorest end of San Antonio, you are still responsible not to use what you have to be mean to other people, to oppress other people, to put other people down, or to cheat other people. Because in one way or another, we're all vulnerable. There will always be somebody else who is ahead of us that can take advantage of us. As a matter of fact, if you make under an average of $106,000 per year, you are below the average for our, the community that we live in right here. So you find yourself on the lower end of the spectrum. But at the same time, you have to realize even if you're far below that number, you are among the wealthiest people in the entire world. And so we find ourselves, wherever you find yourself, whatever amount that you have, whatever power that you have or means that you have, isn't the point. The point is, how are you using what you have to treat other people? The truth is, for many of us, if we missed one paycheck, we're in trouble, right? That puts us in a very vulnerable situation. The truth is, we're all rich and poor. And these people that James is writing to, they were in the midst of a famine. It hadn't rained for years. People are literally, literally starving and dying. And he's seeing his church be scattered and persecuted and they're starving. So they're in the midst of all of this. So this is very close to James's heart. We should never use what we have to oppress others. 
Now, the problem isn't necessarily having things. The problem is when those things have you. When those things become more important in your life than God becomes in your life. When they become what you pursue. And this really echoes back to what we talked about at the beginning of chapter 4 last week. He, he, Paul, I mean, James starts by saying, why is it that you fuss and fight with one another? Will you do this because somebody has something that you want and you can't get it? And so y'all begin to butt heads with one another. The next warning that we see here is that we must guard against a pleasure-dominated life. When what we have or what we want causes us to treat others in a way other than what Christ called us to treat them with, we become selfish. We become self-centered. And James says that's a very dangerous path to take. Now, pleasure is not bad. I, I truly believe God has surrounded you with things that you should enjoy. Whether we're talking about the relationships that are within your life, your friends, your family, the love in your life, God wants you to have that and enjoy that. He surrounds us with the beauty of nature that is all around us. God wants us to enjoy that. There's good food. There are great things, sports. I mean, all kinds of things in this world. Some of you are like, no thanks. But some of you, that you love that stuff, and that's not bad. God created this world for you to enjoy, and God wants you to enjoy other people. But again, the problem comes in when we begin to pursue those things and hold them more dearly than we pursue and hold God within our lives. James knows this. God knows this. And he's emphasizing this point as he starts in on the rich here. He understands what you and I understand, but sometimes it's hard to admit, how quickly that money and pleasure can become the God of our lives. Even if we call ourselves Christians, right? Even if we're doing the right things, every one of us is susceptible to this, where money and pleasure begins to become more important than the person sitting next to us, begins to become more important than the values that we say that we hold. So James is giving some stark warnings against this here as he gets into this. He's hammering home the point with us. How you treat other people really, really matters. So he comes off with this really harsh tone, and then he's going to change the channel really quick. And he goes right into several reminders. He comes from railing on the rich people to all of a sudden, hey, I want to talk to you about patience. I mean, he just totally changes the channel on us. I, patience, patience is a hard deal, right? I mean, for, for all of us, some of us are more patient than others, just naturally more inclined to that. But even if we're a patient person, when I pray, a lot of times, you know, I'm like, okay, God, I know how you should do things, right? Here's what you need to do, God. Here's how I need you to do it. Here's when I need you to do it. I need you to fix this. I need you to help this stop in my life. And I don't mind giving God advice. God, here's what you need to do. Chop, chop. Get to work, right? I mean, we're much more spiritual than that. We call it prayer, and we say, dear Lord, would you bless this? And would you deliver us from this? And uh, your timing isn't the greatest, so chop, chop. 
chop chop is, is Hebrew for amen, right? <laughs> chop chop, go, get to work, God, go do what I've asked you to do. I mean, it's almost like he thinks he's God, you know, instead of me. And the truth is, James is hammering home the, the point here as he's going to talk to us. He knows it's not going to be easy to follow after Christ. And what God is doing in you right now is going to take longer than you want it to take. Because we want things to happen now, right? I mean, that's, that's our culture. Two days on Amazon is too long, right? We want things to happen now. And the truth is, we serve a God who can make it happen now. So if God can make it happen now, God, I want instant, right? But the truth is, God wants to work on every part of your heart and your mind and your life. And what he wants to do in you is going to be a slow, methodical, purposeful process as God works on our hearts, our minds, in our families, in our culture. So the first reminder that James gives us here is be patient in your circumstances. He says this in verse 7. Dear brothers and sisters, he's gone back to the dear sweet talk. Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for rains. And remember, they're in the middle of a famine. Who wait for rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for valuable, the valuable harvest to ripen. I love the first example he gives us here as farmers. Being a Christian and being patient as God does his work within us doesn't mean, okay, now go sit in the lazy boy, put your feet up, get yourself a nice cold drink, and just wait for God to do whatever he wants to do in you. If you've ever been around a farmer, that is not a farmer's lifestyle at all. Farmers get up early and they work really hard, and they work really long, no matter what the circumstances are, and they get up the next day, and they do it all over again. And when I say they get up the next day, I mean they get up really early before the sun comes up, and they start all over again. They live on faith. They work hard. They trust that something's coming even when they don't see it coming. What they've planted is going to bring a harvest even though they don't see it the next day. They don't quit. They keep working and they get back to work. This, this was my dad. This is what I grew up seeing. My dad was the hardest working and the most patient man that I've ever known in my life. He just kept going and kept working, and he lived out that example for me. Farmers know that a harvest is coming. It may be this year. It may not be this year. There may be years when there's rain. There's years when there's no rain. There's years when there's too much rain. There's years when it freezes too early and the crop is destroyed. There's years when, when pests come in and ruin the crop, but they just keep Going, And that's the illustration that James gives us here. He says, be patient like the farmer. Consider the farmer who is patient. This word patient here that it gives us is very fitting for a farmer because it literally means 
to look with anticipation. There are going to be days in your life when the circumstances are just not there. But you have to trust God that he is working. The next reminder he gives us is to be patient with others. It goes on in verse 10 to say, For example, uh, for examples of patience in suffering, dear brothers and sisters, look at the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, every reader understood this because they understood the Old Testament prophets. The Old Testament prophets were people that God spoke to to say, hey, I want you to go give this message to my people. And they would go speak to people who generation after generation would reject them and mock them. And they would say, God, I'm trying to do what you ask me to do. And they would go to these people and have to be patient with them. It had to be so frustrating and absolutely hard to put up with people in this sort of situation. It's hard to be patient with people when they don't deserve it. Much less when God calls you to serve people and they don't deserve your patience. When he mentioned the prophets, the people understood this. God working within them was not going to be a fast process, just like the prophets understood. These people were a mess. One of the most famous prophets in the Old Testament is Jeremiah. God asked Jeremiah to go speak to this group of people. And in the whole book of Jeremiah, it's really a miserable book, as God calls Jeremiah. He says, he calls him, the priest sees him. This is in chapter 20. The priest of the church, of the synagogue, doesn't like what he's saying, so he has him whipped and put in front of the church, chained up. It goes on. He says in verse 7, O Lord, you misled me. I allowed myself to be misled. You are stronger than I am, and you have overpowered me. Now I am mocked every day, and everyone laughs at me. This guy had to learn to be patient with people, and it was a hard lesson to learn. It goes on and on and on. It gets worse and worse. Just real quick, in verse 14, he says this, Yet I curse the day I was born. May no one celebrate the day of my birth. I curse the messenger who told my father, Good news, you have a son. Let him be destroyed like the cities of old that the Lord overthrew without mercy. Terrify him all day long with battle shouts because he did not kill me at birth. Oh, that I would have died in my mother's womb, that her body, um, uh, that her body would have been my grave. Why was I ever born? My entire life is filled with trouble and sorrow and shame. Here's some dude that needs some therapy, right? I mean, here's a guy, and it's all because he has to be patient with people. God has said, go and give this message, and he is getting beaten, and he's getting mocked, and he's just saying, God, I'm doing what you ask me to do, and he's being patient with these people. But it gets to the point where he says, God, I wish I was never born. Not just, I wish I was never born. The guy who came into the waiting room and said, congratulations, I wish he was dead, right? May, may my birthday not be celebrated, but may it be mourned every year because my life is so hard. He understood what it was like to have to deal with tough people. And you thought your teenagers were bad, right? I mean, these, these prophets had it tough. James is reminding us, that there are going to be days 
when you're going to tell God, God, I've tried to do it your way in my marriage, but I just want to give up. God, I've tried to do it my way with my kids, uh, your way with, with my kids, with my coworkers, with my neighbors. God, I know you want me to reach these people, but I just can't take them anymore. James is reminding us, be patient in your circumstances. What God is doing in you is beautiful and slow. Be patient with others. And the last reminder here, be patient with God. He uses scripture uh, from in verse 11. It says, We give great honor to those who endure suffering. For instance, you know that Job, a man of great endurance, you can see uh, how the Lord was kind to him at the end, for the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. So he references Job in the Old Testament. Again, somebody that every one of these readers would have identified with. Here's a guy who had everything. Satan comes to God, which is a whole other sermon for another time. But he's, God says, man, do you see how good my boy Job is doing? And the devil says, well, he's just doing good because you've blessed him with all that he could ever want. Take away all of his family and all of his toys and all of his riches, and he'll curse you just like everybody else. God says, not Job. He won't do it. So God says, go ahead. And Satan does. Satan destroys everything that Job ever had and loved. He takes it away. And the next 30 chapters are absolutely miserable of Job being surrounded by people who said, you just need to curse God because God has betrayed you. Even his own wife says, why don't you just curse God and die? And finally, by chapter 30, Job ends up crying out to the Lord and he says, all I've ever done is tried to live right and honor you and do what you've called me to do, but I can't take this anymore. And as James is referring to Job here, he's saying, you've got to learn to be patient just like Job was patient because there's going to be days when you're going to feel like God has abandoned you. And you're going to feel like God used to be there, or I used to think he was there, but it's all for naught now. I was mistaken because I can't take this any longer. It says, but don't forget, God restored everything that Job went through and everything that he faced. There will be days when you wonder where God has gone and why he didn't answer your prayer goes on in verse 11. We give great honor to those who endure suffering. Uh, sorry, I already read that one. I'm going to flip back to verse 8 real quick because he says, you too must be patient. Take courage for the coming of the Lord is near. Be patient and take courage. And then he leaves us with just a few quick instructions at the very end of his letter talking about the, the character and the prayer and the lifestyle that we need to live. First of all, he reminds us to be, he gives us this instruction that reminds us to be people who live with integrity. He says, but most of all, brothers and sisters, never take an oath by heaven or earth or anything else, just a simple yes or no, so that you do not so that you do not sin and be condemned. He's echoing Jesus' Sermon on the Mount here, where he says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. In other words, he's reminding us, be people of integrity, because that's going to show to the world what you believe 
is true. And then he goes on and changes subjects again with another instruction for us. The instruction is to be people who pray in every circumstance. Verse 13, are you suffering hardships? You should pray. I want to say our prayer team is available every Sunday after church. We would love to pray for you specifically today. If you're going through a hard time, would you come up here and let us pray for you after church? You don't have to tell us what it is, if you, or you can. But if you're going through a hard time, we would love to pray for you. It goes on and says, are you happy? You should sing praises. Every Sunday we have an opportunity for you to give God praise. Then he goes on in verse 14. Are you sick? You should call the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. Such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick and the Lord will make you well. And if you have committed any sins, you will be forgiven. Now again, this could be a whole other message sometime. I don't know why sometimes God heals instantly. Sometimes God heals Later, we even see this in scripture. Some people were healed instantly. Some people had instructions that they were supposed to follow out and then they were healed. And some people aren't healed on this side of eternity. They're healed when they get to heaven. But I do know this, that God is a healer and that he has called us to pray. And so my responsibility is to pray for those who need prayer. And our elders are going to be available up here today after service. There's nothing weird about it. We're not going to do anything crazy. We do have a little bit of olive oil. And if we can just put a dot of that on you and pray for you, we believe that God can heal. He's the same yesterday as he is today, as he will forever be. And the last instruction that he gives is be committed to helping each other find and follow Jesus. It says, confess your sins to each other so that you may be healed. And that word heal there means whole. You can be made whole. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. My dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings that sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of of many sins. The last instruction here is James finishes up this book of this is how we are to live our life. Is he's saying, by the way you live your life, you're going to be able to help those people who are under the same pressure that you were under that at some point said, I can't take it anymore. And you're going to be able to walk alongside them and say, hey, I know it's hard, but I'm here with you and I'm going to walk with you. And the way we live our lives will point people back to Jesus. We'll point people to his goodness within our lives. James is telling us, take our faith seriously. The good news is God sent Jesus for every one of us that we could know him and that our lives could be transformed and that we could walk on this long, slow, beautiful walk with him. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help every one of us to take our faith seriously. Father, that this wouldn't be a religious charade, but it would be something that from the innermost parts of our heart and spirit and mind, that we would truly live out, Father, that you would be the Lord of our lives. And Father, as it said in that last scripture, Lord, that you would use our lives 
to point people back to you. Lord, that we would know your goodness. Lord, and that we would live it out. Thank you for sending Jesus to die for our sins. If there are any of you here today that need to surrender your life to him, I encourage you just here in the next 30 seconds or so, if you would just pray in your own words to ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life. He calls us even when we don't deserve it, even when we don't know all the answers. Or maybe you're here today and you know you need to get some things in the proper order in your life like James talked about. Would you just take a minute, speak to God what's on your heart. Lord, we thank you for the blood of Christ that we can be yours. We can be your sons and daughters. Lord, help us to learn to wait well, to be patient, to let you lead the way. And may we reflect you in all that we do and in every way. Lord, may we be a good representation of you in our culture and in this world. In Jesus' name.